Hello, everyone. I'm Pam Carroll. Welcome to this episode of Employment Matters. Employment Matters is a podcast series brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest and most prestigious network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms in the world. Today, I'm pleased to be joined with Michael Glassman from Dinsmore and Scholl in Ohio and Glenn Dowd from Day Pitney in Connecticut. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me this afternoon. Today's topic is really interesting because as our listeners are tuning in today, and many of them in the HR industry, the subject of non-competes. So why don't we start by telling our listeners how, you know, why the non-competes are important to employers today. I think back to a book that Michael Friedman wrote a number of years ago, The World is Flat. Uh, And in it, he talked about how current economics measures the value of a country's gross domestic product by how much it weighs. So if you have heavy things like ore or oil or exports of that sort, those are considered to be far less valuable than things that have no weight whatsoever, which are the intellectual property, the plans, the designs, the formulas, the relationships, uh, those kinds of things. And I think that the current move of employers to having non-competes in place, non-solicit agreements in place is a reflection of that, that there is an absolute essential need for all modern businesses to have a means of protecting their critically important intellectual property. Uh, At the same time, there's a need for freedom of employee movement and fairness to employees in these situations so they don't end up like a modern-day indentured servant at their current employer. Uh, And that's the balance that the law is trying to hit. And Mike and I do a lot of work counseling both employers who are putting non-competes into place to value these essential assets that they have and counseling employers and how they can lawfully hire other workers who are subject to these non-competes, perhaps from their competitors in in a variety of situations. So how does that value get translated for an employer? You know, what is the value of a non-compete? Well, the value of a non-compete to an employer is that it protects its confidential information, its proprietary information, and its goodwill so that it protects that kind of information if an employee decides to leave to go to another employer that the leaving employee cannot use that kind of information, its goodwill, uh, customer relationships, things of that nature for his or her new employer for things that he or she acquired at the former employer to unfairly compete against the former employer by using information that the employee acquired at the former employer. It's a means of protection uh, for some reasonable time. It can't necessarily go on in perpetuity in general, but for some reasonable period of time and within some reasonable geographical limitations, and those vary depending on the nature of the business, the nature of the information that's sought to be protected. If it's reasonable, at least in Ohio and in most jurisdictions, there are some exceptions, non-competes will be enforced by courts against uh, departing employees. Okay, so that's a really good um, segue because I think that we've established that the non-competes are a good value for employers. So let's talk about what's required to have an enforceable non-compete. It varies by state to state. So, for example, California, uh, which is, I think, considered by most of us in the employment law community to be a very employee-friendly state, 
uh, has a prohibition by law against non-compete agreements, uh, unless I believe it's in connection with the sale of a business or an enterprise. But in most states, there is a pretty familiar formula uh, that looks at the restrictions that are put in place uh, in the non-compete and whether they're reasonable or not. And specifically, the first one that's looked at is length. How long is it that the employee is restricted from doing a certain activity? Uh, the next one is the scope of activity. So if I'm in marketing and there's a non-compete that purports to keep me from taking a finance job, for example, at another employer, that might be deemed to be unreasonable because I'm really not taking any kind of trade secrets or knowledge to the other place that I'm going. There was... Uh, back in the days when salespeople used shoe leather or people serviced a certain geographic area, there was a geography component in many. Is this a reasonable geographic restriction on the employee in terms of what's prohibited by the non-compete? As we've entered kind of the gig economy and the internet economy, that's fallen by the, the wayside a bit. Uh, and you do see non-competes now, even if they have worldwide coverage deemed to be reasonable in that regard. And the final factor that courts look at is just public policy and public good. So if you had to be an extreme example, someone like Jonas Salk, who is developing the polio vaccine, and you sought to keep him somehow from doing that vital public interest, again, an extreme example. But that's the idea that's incorporated in this. Perhaps there's a doctor who is restricted from providing services in an underserved area. And all of this, I think, reflects to a great degree the court's ambivalence about enforcing these agreements. And I think Mike can talk about that. We've all been on the enforcing side and the enforced against side. If you're a judge, and, and it is a judge who makes these decisions, not a jury, since it's what we would call an equitable action in order of, of uh, restriction, you're sitting and looking and saying, I'm going to keep this person from earning a living. I'm going to keep this person from providing for their family in many cases. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Courts generally don't like to enforce kind these non-competes. And if you want to go in forward and get them enforced, you better have pretty compelling reasons why it's appropriate to do so. Yeah, the law in Ohio, for example, is consistent with what Glenn explained in terms of reasonableness, in uh, terms of le how long it is in the geography. Another point that uh, Glenn touched on is that it is uh, the enforceability. If someone is alleged to have violated a non-compete and the former employer wants to go into court to try to enforce it, it is before a judge rather than a jury. And it, a lot of it is really dependent on who the judge is that's going to decide the case, at least in the jurisdictions in which I've practiced. While there is a body of law that guides the judge, once you get beyond that, and judges typically follow the law in terms of what the principles are. But beyond that, a lot of it does really get into the personal inclinations of the particular judge. Uh, for example, I had a case once where our client was trying to enforce a non-compete against a departing employee, an employee who actually had departed already. And uh, we went in for a temporary restraining order. And the process in this particular court was one where 
It was a docket call. We had to wait until our case was called. And immediately before our case, there was a criminal case where the judge had sentenced the felon to some number of years in prison. And when our case got called, we made our argument and uh, why the non-compete should be enforced. And the uh, employee's attorney made an argument as to why it shouldn't be enforced. And part of it was that uh, he didn't hadn't read it, he didn't understand it, and things of that nature. And the judge's response was to refer back to the criminal that he had just sentenced. And the judge said something to the effect that You saw I sent that person away for three years in jail for violating a section of the Ohio Revised Code. He had never read that. He had never seen that. And so that I'm not going to buy the fact that your client had not understood or read the non-compete. If I'm going to send that gentleman away for three years to jail, I'm going to enforce this non-compete. Other judges may not have that kind of attitude. The judge in that particular case was... Um, While he applied the principles that Glenn and I have been talking about, he was uh, more interested in just enforcing the non-compete as written. He thought that was appropriate to do. You tend to have two kinds of mindsets. A deal's a deal. You signed this, you agreed to it, and we're going to hold you to it. Or is this fair? And it really varies widely. I think there is one kind of universal principle, and I think Mike would agree with this as well. If you have the departing employee behaving very badly on the way out, that is almost always a ticket for lack of sympathy by the judge in that case. So in the old days, it used to be the copy machine running late at night to uh, copy all the contacts. Uh, We've advanced a great deal from that. So now it's thumb drives or emails to people's personal accounts, which, of course, we can track down with forensics to look at what people are doing. I had one case where we were at a temporary restraining order hearing, and our expert testified that the departing employee had visited evidenceeraser.com the night before he left, and that uh, had a very uh, predictable effect on the judge's sympathy for the person. So all of these things come into play when you're trying to enforce these things. So with the idea, though, if we take the uh, direction of, uh, hey, you signed this, you know, therefore it's done as a HR professional or an employer who's putting forth procedures, is there any advice that you give your clients in terms of when you're executing these initially? Well, I think one of the important things to do is because as Mike and I are explaining these restrictions that are put on enforceability and the reasonableness requirements. In many states, there's a concept called a blue pencil clause where you can say, hey, court, if you find that anything we've put in here is unduly restrictive as to the length or the scope of activities, you can pair that back to the most restrictive but still enforceable provisions that are there and essentially reform the agreement to make it enforceable. I think that's one good practice that in the states where that's allowable, we certainly advise our employers to embrace. I would agree with that. Some states uh, do not have that blue pencil concept. And if there is an invalid provision in there, since the law in that particular jurisdiction doesn't permit the judge to modify it to make it reasonable, the judge would have to invalidate the entire agreement. There are states that don't have the blue pencil test. So I think it's important for employers when drafting a non-compete in a jurisdiction that recognizes the blue pencil doctrine to have a clause specifically in the agreement that says if a court finds it to be 
unreasonable or overbroad in a particular respect, the court has the authority to modify it to make it reasonable, so to avoid invalidating the entire agreement. How do we classify who is appropriate to have a non-compete attached to it? That's a great question because some employers who have read about non-competes, they take the approach, well, I want to have every employee in my organization sign a non-compete from the highest level executives down to the janitor who's cleaning the offices or other areas of the facility. The employer, and that's not, at least in my view, not a a wise approach at all. Um, I think an employer has to be thoughtful about who the employer is going to require to sign a non-compete in terms of the position and analyze whether this person really does have access to the kinds of information that Glenn identified at the beginning, trade secrets, intellectual property, uh, goodwill with customers, relationships with customers, because that really is the key to enforcing these kinds of agreements. And Someone who's in a very low-level position, uh, hourly employee, janitorial, even perhaps a receptionist, positions like that, I don't think it's appropriate to have those types of categories of employees sign non-competes because the likelihood of a judge enforcing those probably is uh, pretty minimal. The employer has to have a protectable interest. Now, there are some exceptions to that. I mean, you may have a receptionist who has developed goodwill and good relationships and is knowledgeable of customer lists and things of that nature, and you would not want that individual going to a competitor. But it should not be just a across the board, having every employee sign. Exactly. Carte blanche. Put some thought into it as to who would really hurt our business if they leave and go to a competitor across the street with the information that they have gathered at our facility. And I think your question raises another point, which in some cases can make courts leery of enforcing non-competes. And that's an employer who's really using them for an improper purpose. They're not using them to really value or guard trade secrets or valuable relationships or goodwill, but they're using them as a means to keep their salary structure competitive and keep people kind of locked into an organization that's not providing competitive benefits with the marketplace. And courts are very anxious to look at that kind of situation and That behavior is often characterized by an employer who has very broad applicability of non-competes beyond those people that you would normally think would have. Brings to mind the intent behind it. Why are you doing this? So if as an employer now, I decide that I want to incorporate non-competes within my HR policies and procedures, let's leave our listeners with some key takeaways on how they might implement some of those. Well, I can start and I'll let my friend Mike do cleanup uh, as he does so well. But I think the most important thing to do as an employer is to look and be able to say, I can tell you in three sentences why it's critical to guarding my legitimate protectable interest to have this person subject to a non-compete for this period of time. So an example might be someone in a marketing or sales role. I have for years financed this person to go out and meet these clients. I have 
farmed and given this person leads. I have paid for them to do countless dinners and lunches and conferences and programs and in some cases trips and everything else. I have built this person up over a long, long period of time. And now to allow a competitor to come and simply take that person away for a few dollars more and not have to put in all that foundational work and effort and time and dollars is simply unfair compared to I'm going to assign my people to non-competes and it will inhibit them from going and seeking better pay elsewhere. So those are kind of the dichotomy that I think is in play. But really focus on what the important reasons are why you need the non-compete agreement in place. And I think to follow up or to build on what Glenn said is that the employer should be thoughtful about how it fashions the non-compete, not just simply to go to the Internet and get a sample off of uh, the Internet. There are thousands of there. There is not it's not a cookie cutter type of process. It really needs to be thoughtful. How do I protect the kinds of interests that Glenn identified? If you're a certain kind of employer, you may need to think about what kind of geographical scope I need. It may be the whole United States to protect if you have a salesperson that's calling on customers throughout the country and the employer does business throughout the country. On the other hand, if you have a salesman who's much more localized, confined to a particular state, the employer ought to think about, uh, will I be hurt if this person moves a thousand miles away and starts calling customers in those jurisdictions as well? One other thing I'd, I'd like to add, uh, we've been focused on uh, throughout the discussion, an employer implementing non-competes. The same employer oftentimes is on the other end of the transaction, in a sense, uh, where it's looking to hire an individual who may have a non-compete with that individual's former employer. And so the new employer, who's the hiring employer, has to take a lot of these principles into account as well. Really, the first thing, and it may seem pretty basic, but I think it's worth mentioning, is that an employer ought to ask during the hiring process before it extends an offer whether or not this individual is bound by any kind of restrictive agreement from the former employer. And actually, I think it's a good best practice to include that kind of question on an application form or in an interview to directly ask the person that's being recruited, whether or not he or she is bound by any kind of agreement. If the answer is no, generally, it's a pretty clear path to hiring that person. If the answer is yes, I do have this agreement, the hiring employer ought to get a copy of that agreement to review because probably in many cases, I'm sure Glenn's had this experience as well, where a hiring employer will consult legal counsel to review the person that's being recruited to review that person's agreement with the former employer to see whether or not it's an enforceable agreement pursuant to the principles that Glenn and I have been discussing throughout this podcast to see if it really is enforceable because the new employer, if it's aware that there's an agreement and hires the person despite the agreement, and it is a valid agreement, not only can the employee who signed the non-compete agreement be liable for monetary damages uh, to the former employer, but so can the, the new employer. 
a great point, and you can't believe how frequently it happens that, to Mike's point from a moment ago, people just go out and gin up some cheap non-compete agreement from some form they got from their uncle or off the internet, uh, and then wonder why they have trouble enforcing it. Or similarly, on the hiring side, don't really even ask the question or investigate or have counsel look at the agreement and give them advice on on how to hire somebody who might be subject to a non-compete. And I'm thinking if I were an employee that had signed a non-compete 15 years ago, I might very well forget what's in there. So the fact if I'm going somewhere and you ask me for a copy of it, all of a sudden I'm reviewing it and going, this is, oh. This is what we hear oops. all the time. You know, I signed my W-4. I signed I received the handbook. I signed that I want these number of benefits on my benefit form. And, oh, yeah, I had to sign this too. It was one of a big stack of things I had. I didn't look at it. I just signed and in that kind of situation um, where an employer maybe or employee has been with the company for 15 years and in this kind of situation that you described, Pam, they may say, I, I don't even know. Well, they ought to ask and sometimes they're wary of asking. But if you're the hiring employer, it's critical that you have them find out. And sometimes they don't want to go to HR to find out. They may ask one of their co-employees at their existing company if they have a copy of it. But the employer, if is taking a risk if there's any uncertainty. I think if the individual is uncertain as to whether he or she is signed a, a non-compete. Well, gentlemen, I think we've given our listeners a lot to uh, think about and some actionable items that they can take back to their workplace. And of course, if they need further advice and recommendations, we have tremendous amount of resources on the ELA.law website of which they can access your member firm's information to for further educational information. I'd like to thank both of you for sharing your insight and expertise today on this very important topic of non-competes and sharing how it impacts today's workplace. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today for another episode of Employment Matters. If you need further information, go to ela.law. And also, we invite our listeners to reach out to us if there is a workplace topic that's really important to you that you need further information on us. One of those topics that keep you up at night, reach out to me at pam at ela.law and we'll be sure to include it in a future podcast. So once again, I want to say thank you. This is Pam Carroll. Have a great day.